Hey everybody, my name is Alec, and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio, Sunday edition. Now, I, um, saw what, well, I got the sense with a fairly new YouTuber in the field of, not anime, but animation. And he did a video, um, on the difference between Western and Eastern animation, and he wanted to show that, like, the the focus on Eastern animation was more ethereal, more environmental, less focused on the character, and the focus on, and he used the, um, we'll get to the movies he used in a minute, I'm keeping this secret for a minute. For for a minute, for a reason, but um, he and he said that the huge focus on Western animation was in character, and everything was about the character of like the character you were focused on, and the the examples he used were. Two examples, it was, he used a silent voice, he used movies for the sake of, like, compression, but, um, compression into a 13-minute video, but he used a silent voice, and then he used The Hunchback of Notre Dame, and this is where it started to fall apart for, for me. But also started to make me think about um, a film that is 100% truly an anime. You cannot lie. You you cannot lie to yourself anymore. It is truly an anime. It was produced by Walt Disney Japan. And that is The Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. Which, if you're like, what, what, Alex? What are you talking about? You, you, what, what are you smoking so early in the morning? That can't be. I'm like, yep. It, the Hunchback of Notre Dame Two, was animated by the Walt Disney Company Japan, like animation staff in Japan, and released direct to video here. Now, my big problem with um the video was it it started to get to a thing and I'll I'll find the link to the video. It's in my watch history and I'll put it in the um description of this podcast. But it started to get to a thing that's really really significant and true. Um but it didn't it just didn't stick the landing. And I think that what he accidentally landed on, but didn't talk about, was more interesting than what he was talking about. Because he was talking about how, you know, in a silent voice, it's all about it's all about the situation. It's all about the um, scenario that the characters find themselves in. It's way more environmental, but he. 
he uses a, a key example that it's like the bane of every, and I should know this, I'm physically disabled. It is the bane of every physically disabled person, like in the mid to late 90s, ever. It is like one of the cardinal sins of disability in popular media, I shit you not. And that's the scene when, um, when Quasimodo sees, Ed, sees Esmeralda kiss the, like, I forget the prince's name in that, but he sees them kiss. And there's this, there's this deep, fucked up sadness in that scene for anybody who has any kind of physical disability, because what that scene tells you as a young kid who's running around in an arm brace and a leg brace is you don't get this. You don't get to have, you get to save the day, but you don't get to have the girl. You don't get to have a relationship. It, it That's not something you get. And in A Silent Voice, A Silent Voice is... Now, now, granted, to be fair to fucking the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which you should not have to be fucking fair to, it it features a it features a Diddy princess who is you know never recognized, largely after they figured out the whole princess branding, who is a absolute person of color, like barely whitewashed, and is it has an inter it has just straight up like oh hey this is an interracial relationship in it but it and it 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 makes the choice of being like oh the bad guy is the person who's making Quasimodo feel bad and like a monster because he's different and because he specific, specifically because he's disabled and the it's like the true heartbreaking part of that movie is that up until the moment in which Quasimodo doesn't get to be with Esmeralda, it feels kind of fantastic to watch that movie. Or the, the arc of that movie is designed to make disabled people feel like empowered and meaningful and like they can affect change. Now granted, the original story of The Hunchback of Notre Dame is like a whole bunch of sex and everybody dies because it was written basically as a promotional piece for um, the Notre Dame Cathedral. <laughs> um, it's basically fancy marketing for a building, um, which I freaking love. But up until that point, it doesn't it doesn't feel at worst it feels like a love triangle in which you not just you the person like the disabled person but the entire audience is rooting for Esmeralda and Quasimodo and the reason why you know this is so affecting to people with disabilities is because I remember everybody's names except for the prince I remember all the good guys names but the the 
the thing that the Hunchback of Notre Dame does, the Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 does, is that it is literally an apology movie for the Hunchback of Notre Dame. It is a movie in which they restart that universe expressly to give Quasimodo a romantic interest. And like give and like it 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 strikes you when you like stop and think about it or even stop and watch it as too little too late. Because and I'm sure you can both you can go find both on freaking Disney Plus right now. But it it's it, it strikes you as this amazing like oh shit, we fucked up. We like we Can we get a mulligan on this on this landing of this plane now that we've like smeared it across the runway so hard that it physically hurts to look at? Um and the and they make that worse by like still putting Esmeralda in that movie a little bit, I think. And it's just like it's and and also making um in large part Quasimodo's new partner kind of a weirdo? Like, oh, of course this village weirdo is in love with the weird, but we tolerate him because he saved the town hunchback. And it just, it feels... It, it feels like the best that the team given that movie could do with what they were given as of, as like the, with what the preceding movie was. And it's there in which I go back and I turn around and I look at, um, and I look at, um, a silent voice and uh, you go, or you go and you look at something like um, Princess Mononoke, or any number, or Full Metal Alchemist does a great job of it too. And Full Metal Alchemist is like, Full Metal Alchemist is very pro disabled people for the record. <laughs> Like unnervingly pro disabled people for for the record, it's kind of incredible. Um, but it and you left with this kind of you left with this realization that this in the instance of these two movies, not in the instance of all movies of of all comparisons of this type, like. Eastern and West, like, Japanese anime and American animation. When the instance of these two movies... And actually, I'll say in the instance of, like... In the instance of all... In the instance of storytelling in you know, Japanese anime and Western animation. And this is this was the reason that Avatar was and continues to be 
a property that is so renowned in Western animation is because it took this coconut and it cracked it wide open for a Western audience in animation that was inspired by, but still clear, inspired by anime, but was still clearly, you know, in a more Western style. And that's... Western animation wants to... Western animation and Western forms of storytelling want to... Um, create... tend to want to create a... especially for a super mass... like a mass young audience, tend to want to create good guys and bad guys. But the version of but the version of that kind of storytelling of telling that kind of story in Eastern in Eastern in not even Eastern um in Japanese in anime tends to want to humanize every character involved. They want you to have some understanding of depth of many characters. Now there's plenty of anime that aren't interested in this or are just interested in making a big bad guy that you don't understand and and like the show doesn't want you to understand. But let's take a let's take a look at a huge show right now. My Hero Academia. Every single major villain in My Hero Academia is given a ton of screen time and even minor villains are given tons of screen time and a ton of screen time divorced from the hero they are given life outside of the main conflict if you look at um the the great and some of this is added in after the fact with um especially with my hero academia is very western comic superhero comic influenced, but the, the, um, to the great one, to the great one of the, like, um, introduction episodes, like, a great, so, and I've talked about this before on my main podcast, on the Thursday show, but the way they structure, um, cores of, um, My Hero Academia is they have a kind of non-sequitur episode at the beginning and front as an as a reintroduction to the world. And one of them was focused on not the not our heroes, not Deku and Class 1A, but on one of the members of the League of Villains twice. It was about him living his life. It was about how ostracized he is because of his because of his quirk and how his quirk affected his mental his um mental health and what that meant and what that and what and what that meant for the greater world and feeling of equality in the greater world of my hero academia and you've seen this kind of concept displayed before in heroes like um in heroes like Eraserhead, Aizawa, where his quirk is 
considered to be pretty dangerous because he could just turn off people's works. Um, you see it demonstrated now in Emmy, the um, little character with the horn, the like little horned girl from the um, from the um, from the Yakuza fight arc. And you see it in that Yakuza fight arc. You see that episode referenced back in that Yakuza fight arc when Twice loses part of his con costume and, um, what's her face? Fucking best deranged girl. Um, the, the, the girl who can, like, cut people and use their blood to turn, to, like, transform into them kind of thing. Um, she, she's like, oh shit, he's not that mentally stable. And she, like, takes off her part of her, her like, school sailor, like, handkerchief and ties it around his head. And he's, he's like, you're okay. It's okay. You'll be okay. And it's this, like, touching interesting moment between both of these characters where they truly care about each other and they're looking out for each other and it it gives you this sense that the world is not as cut and dry as you want it to be so this um at the end of princess monoki there's this great theme where Lady Eboshi has lost her arm, by the way, spoilers for Prince Monoki. It's forever old. Go watch it. It's one of the best animated films kinda ever. So go watch it. Um but the the there's this moment when in Prince Monoki where Lady Eboshi had lost her arm and she's looking out over what used to be her Iron Town, this giant iron manufacturing facility on a, on a hill that they had, like, def- desiccated to basically be, make money off of, and, and mine the iron ore under, under the mountain. And she has this realization that she's the one who got them there, that she's her, like, brash forging ahead was the thing that got them to be almost dead at the hands of a of an ancient god that she that she killed and that nothing good would come of her killing but also nothing bad and it was this moment where you the viewer realized like she became disabled and became a better person. And it used this moment of, like, I am no longer, it, it has this very, it has this very odd feel of, like, she is no longer a person who will be able to do certain things on her own. So she is immediately forced to consider things outside of herself. And for the entire movie, she is a 
she is a terrible person. Like she is a she is she is the she is that movie's bad guy. It, it at first at first glance and at first reading, but by the same token, she has rescued dozens, if not hundreds, of women from working in brothels in in Japan. She has taken in a couple dozen lepers who are outcasts and terrors in, to their own family. She is providing a way for, you know, all these people to live. And the reason why she's going after the head of the whole fourth spirit is because she wants to give it to the emperor and make a boatload of money so she can continue to do these things. She's not evil. She just the film poses her as at best misguided and it poses the real it poses the real villain as being um if not the monk played by played expertly by Billy Bob Thornton. But um it poses the real villain mostly as the kind of capitalist nonsense that made her not only think that she could do this this way, but know that she could do this this way, know that she could do what she wanted to do if she took these steps and this was the end point. Damn the consequences. What What's the worst that could happen, apparently? And as soon as her circumstances changed, she changed. But let's go back to um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. As soon as Quasimodo's changed, as, as soon as Quasimodo's circumstances changed, the world would have changed, would have changed around him. But the the world doesn't the world doesn't really change for Quasimodo until it's handed to a group of animators who and Prince Monoki had already come out at the, by the point that um I believe it had by the point um but even if it hadn't a group of animators who have been conditioned by the animation they've been taking in for their entire lives, in addition to, I'm sure, Disney movies by night by the mid-90s, that understood that everyone is human and everyone need and everyone deserves to be considered. And where lots of Disney, well, lots of not, not just Disney animation, but where lots of animation, Western animation is catching up constantly right now, is what to do when you're approached with the things that aren't cut and dry, the things that get messy, the questions that that people are starting to understand 
have simple answers when people wanted them to be conversations. They're just a, of course, or no. Like, should the disabled main character of a film get the girl when he saves the girl? Should the, or even bigger, should the girl have to go to the prince? Should the girl feel like she gets some choice? And what's the best message to give the audience? Like, yes, the female character should get some choice in the matter, but also, don't write your movie so she goes to the big, blonde, handsome prince you can sell toys of. Especially when you're not going to sell toys of the girl or the hero. Because, you know, racism and, and, racism and ableism. And And this is, by the way, this is a well-known concept in the disabled community that Hunchback of Notre Dame is a piece of shit that should be thrown in a fire and, like, Disney does not get an out ever from producing that movie. <laughs> um, but the... And also, if you have disabled kids, do not show them the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Do, like... Try your best not to let them see it because it is, it is future scarring in a way that very few things will be for your child. <laughs> I'm totally serious. It's very fucked. Um, but where now the the answer is, of course, of course, disabled people should be able to live happy lives and, you know, live, live their version of a normal life and a successful life. And it, not just a successful life, they should, disabled people, like normal, fully able-bodied people, aren't just allowed, but they deserve, just like everyone else, to be able to succeed in life. To not just to not just survive, but thrive. But not just survive, but thrive in life. And that's the real difference in, um, in between the two movies. Is that in Hunchback of Notre Dame, Quasimodo, for a moment, thrives and saves Paris. But then he goes back to just being allowed to survive at a slightly better level. Whereas in um, A Silent Voice, which is a which is straight up just like, hey, if you ever pick on a disabled person, you are a piece of shit. That's where that movie starts, and it 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 makes the audience of the film feel bad because what it does is it does a like musical montage moment for just an entire class of kids just torturing Shoko and like trashing her hearing aids 
and the main character is the one who ultimately goes too far. Although all those kids are fucking culpable and assholes. Um, one with lots of the adults in that movie, when you stop and think about it. Um, but they, that movie becomes about, about not just Shoko surviving, but about Shoko's struggle to thrive in the world, to thrive in the world, regardless of whether or not she can hear you or not. And the climactic moment that they talk about in, um, that YouTuber talks about in the film is the scene where um, the main character finds Shoko about to kill herself and saves her. And he, he God bless his soul, is like, Listen, you need to go watch this movie, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but he just like he he leaves out what happens at the end. Which kind of because his because his video isn't about this thing isn't about the other thing that is the text that is the real text of his video, which is Walt Disney you know, decades ago, uh, like, almost a decade ago, decided, hey, disabled people don't get the, basically it was like, hey, disabled people don't get the fuck. You ugly weirdos don't get the fuck. And uh, a silent voice is very like, no, you, like, be as horny as you want, let's go. Which I love. Um, it doesn't. It, it's a Shoko is eventually saved, and they're like they get to live halfway ever after as a couple and all that stuff. But that's because typically. Anime is about anime when it comes to characters. It recognize is about recognizing the humanity in characters, not the not the like hero struggle in a in a in a situation or like not about telling a great story, quote unquote. It's about what that story says and what and what that story says to the people it's talking to. That's why so much of Japanese animation is like, hey, 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 you dum-dums, fucking make babies. Because they want to say that those things to the people in Japan because it's got a huge population problem right now. And that's the thing that ultimately... Avatar brought to the table was Avatar brought brought to the mainstream animation world an ability to have a conversation about something real and something big and outside of itself, outside of its own missos, in a very clear and un um, and un 
disguised way. So, like, I'll use one example from Avatar, and I'll use another example from, uh, I'll use one example from Korra. Avatar has an episode devoted to um, why Ozai is the way fucking Ozai is. And it, it humanizes that character for a, for like an episode, for like a moment. And then it shows you that, that character did not become that way just because he was born evil. He became that way after like decades of you know, family strife and family, um, family strife and family, and family reindoctrination of the kids and everything, and it becomes this story of why Zuko was the way Zuko was at the beginning of that thing, and why Azula can't escape it. And it, it it's incredibly sad because it is about a power structure that overwhelms everybody that even approaches it. And then you fast forward to Korra. And at the moment, and it's like one of the first times you meet Zuko, you realize that Zuko has changed the power structure of that, of his own nation. And, but also in um, Korra, you, they have conversations about, like, they have a civil war arc that's all about, like, outside aggressors and, you know, destroying a culture and, like, white people using brown people to their own ends and all kinds of fucking madness. The existence of Varric in that show is like its own whole fucking narrative. Even though Varric is a hilarious joke character lots of times. In the end, he's very serious and very much not. The existence of the Beifong family in that show is wild. And it and it and you can trace that existence of the Beifong family back to Avatar. And it that was really the first kind of its animation to blow up super popularly that was doing that was doing what something like the very special episode of Batman Beyond where they talk about drugs was doing with without being so on the nose and and with trusting its audience to understand like oh oh I get this this is saying a thing but it, it it's not saying the 
it's not saying the quiet part loud. Uh, which um, the last kind of example I'll use is if you go watch. Um, so this is a fun experiment. Go watch an episode of say Legend of Korra, and you'll see all the like odd dynamics of you know racial tensions, bender non bender tensions, all this stuff. And then go watch an episode of Static Shock. And Static Shock is so on the nose, so aggressively, like we can do be- we can do better, kids. That it's really amazing. <laughs> like I keep saying on this podcast constantly, episode like three is about intellectual property theft of not even not even whole music of backing beats for music from the inner from inner city black kids it's wild there's an episode where they're just like what if we just made somebody dad a super racist and had to deal with that shit and then go watch an episode of Cora where you know, Korra is always referred to as a water tribe girl, which, you know, means that she's a Native American Inuit girl. And everything that means, everything that that translates to, watch that show slowly say, hey, let's start coding Korra as gay. <laughs> okay, now what? Let's. let's Let's walk on this path, and now let's run on this path, and now let's steal a motorbike and shoot down this path. And it, it's just everything about everything about Avatar and the subsequent shows is so interested in humanizing all aspects of its character in a way that. Even now, something like, um, what's it called, um, what's that Rebecca Sugar show, um, Steven Universe. Even now, Steven Universe has moments where it falters and where it, like, it, it doesn't know what to do with the building block that's picking up, so it makes a joke and then it moves on. And it calls that joke world building, and then you're just like, um, no, that was weird and slightly horrifying, but world building, it was not. I will not give you a gold star for this show. And <sighs> Western animation still takes such close reading by its uh, by its audience to get out of it what uh, what anime is putting in the text and when western animators and western storytellers try to adapt it and they do a good job they take those parts and correctly use they take those techniques and correctly use them to tell really fascinating stories because 
they start playing with live ammo in a way that they in a way that is necessarily different than the kind of ultra commercialized um lens with which animation is produced in America. And on that note, and that, and actually, uh, before I end, what I wanted to say was, that's why if you look at a a movie like Hunchback of Notre Dame 2, which is totally an anime, done in Japan, by a Japanese studio, owned by an American company, deal with it. It feels so different, and it feels so much more considerate of Quasimodo as a disabled person than that show, than that film, than its predecessor, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, did. Because it, it was like, no, what, like, you fucking dumbasses fuck this up. Like, he should have ended up with Morelba, with Esmeralda. Now he gotta make a whole fucking new bitch. Just so he gets the love interest. Like, he should have the first time. You f- brain-dead, batshit morons. And you're gonna let us do it, because it's going direct-to-video, so you don't care that much anyway, and people will buy this, and... We need to apologize to the world's disabled community because you're Disney and you fucked up. And on that note, my name has been Alex. If you liked this episode, um, new episodes of the podcast come out every third day and Sunday. Third day are more traditional, me talking about specific series, shows, Sundays are more like this. They're more metatextual, more fan-based, more industry-based. Um, if you want to listen to another Sunday episode, I highly recommend you listen to the Sunday episode where I brought on and talked to Taylor, a.k.a. Cogplay Fiend, over on TikTok and every other place on the internet. That was so much fun and really fascinating, and... I'm very proud of it, so you should go listen to it. I think it's one of the better podcasts I've ever produced. So um, thanks, and I will talk to you on Thursday. day.